Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a story about how we got to now. The now part is probably something you know a bit about, so we'll skip that. But earlier chapters of this story have some pretty odd plot twists. And as good a day as any to start is June 13, 1971, the day that excerpts of the Pentagon Papers started being published. This weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see and brought cries of outrage from Washington. The papers were leaked by a defense analyst and economist named Daniel Ellsberg, and the disclosure quickly changed the conversation about the Vietnam War because it gave the public a behind-the-scenes glimpse at what politicians hadn't been telling them. A name has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon documents. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of these. Among the many people and entities that got unwanted attention with the publication of the Pentagon Papers was a fairly covert collection of scholars called the Jasons. This elite group of scientists that are drafted by the federal government, usually the intelligence agencies, to solve major issues of national uh, importance and especially national defense issues. Nathaniel Rich is a writer at large for The New York Times Magazine and the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History. And it's a group that has its roots in the Manhattan Project and the atom bomb. They were operated in total secrecy until the Vietnam War when the Pentagon Vapors, when they were uh, leaked, disclosed their existence and their efforts to use high-tech bombing radar solutions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Rich says the Jasons thought of themselves as the good guys. And when that image started to change, and it's important to keep in mind that some of the scientists in the group had deep misgivings about the Vietnam War, well, the Jasons wanted to turn their image around. By the late 1970s, they had figured out, they thought, a way to do that. The group saw an enormous problem heading straight for the U.S. Most people in the public didn't know anything about it, but the Jasons were on the case. Yeah, it's the classic opening scene um, in a Michael Bay movie or something where the elite scientists get together at the Pentagon and say, you know, this meteor is coming right at us. We need to do something. And they call the president. And essentially, that's what they did with climate change. They met a couple times in these summer meetings that they would have, uh, 77, 78, And there was one scientist who was essentially the chief scientist for the the CIA, Gordon MacDonald, who'd worked under every president closely since Kennedy. And he was particularly concerned about the issue. He'd been tracking it for years. So this elite group has secret meetings. And this is, remember, 40 years ago. And they're really worried. And they publish a report. And it predicted exactly how much warming they thought would occur once levels of CO2 in the atmosphere doubled, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, And they saw that happening around 2030 and predicted about a three-degree warming Celsius, which would have dramatic cataclysmic transformation of society. You know, it's a huge strain on agriculture, drought, heat waves. They saw, you know, sea level rise. But for sort of more for national security concerns, he worried about uh, major destabilization of all the sort of trouble spots in the world that you would have massive migration as people fled, you know, fires and floods, and the migration would lead to huge geopolitical conflict. This is not a conclusion that was original to him, that you can find this in intelligence agency reports about climate change going back much earlier 
into the 60s and, and early 70s. But they were the Jasons. They were this elite cadre of, you know, superhero scientists. They had a different status in the government than any scientist. They're hugely respected. They're essentially the kind of counselors to presidents. Then into this story steps a guy named Rafe Pomerantz, an environmental activist. One day he stumbles over this report that mentions the science of climate change. He can't believe what he's reading. It's not news to scientists, including scientists working inside oil and coal companies, but it's news to him, just as it would have been in the late 1970s to most Americans. And Pomerantz is really worried. His wife is pregnant. He's concerned about the kind of world that he's going to bring his child into, which is when he and Gordon MacDonald join forces. It's this very bizarre partnership. It's, it's a, like a weird buddy comedy or, <laughs> or tragedy, I don't know, um, where you have Gordon MacDonald, who who's like a fo- looks like a football player. He was a football player as a kid before he got a scholarship to Harvard and became a scientific prodigy. And Rafe Pomerantz, who's this sort of draft draft dodger Vietnam protester. So you have this scientist at the heart of the military-industrial complex, serious guy, and then this hippie, basically. And Rafe is an expert at Friends of the Earth, environmental group, and he reads about this issue, can't believe it's it's real, goes to meet McDonald, and they join up. And they, using their connections, they talk to every agency they can find, and it, they end up speaking at the end of this process to Frank Press, who's the... Uh, science advisor to Jimmy Carter and an, an old friend of McDonald. And yeah, uh, they basically go around and they do what I think is any of us would do or most of us would do intuitively when you come a- across some uh, information like this, which is to say, hey, everybody, this is going on. Probably you don't understand this because if you did, surely you would act and the you being people in positions of enormous power within the U.S. government. So they do that and people... You know, they nod and they accept the explanations and they don't act. So, you know, Jimmy Carter um, is kind of known as an environmental president. He obviously had to deal with the oil crisis. You know, he kind of famously was like, don't turn the heat up, put on another sweater. Like, don't, you know, use up um, extra energy. He put solar panels on the White House. Did he... Was this was that all because of a geopolitical situation, or did he know or care or understand at all um, about what Gordon McDonald, this elite physicist, was telling him about? Like, uh, you know, I, I just have something to say. The world is getting warmer, and we're going to have to deal with that. He understood that intellectually. He gave presidential addresses about the need to conserve resources to protect the environment. You know, he had a reputation as a great environmental president for a reason. Uh, and in fact, he had been briefed on the CO2 problem by Frank Press a couple of years earlier. There's a briefing memo from 1977, I believe. So they were aware of the issue. However, there was a geopolitical problem, which was that they were coming out of these oil scares from mm-hmm. the Middle East and, and fear that they wouldn't be able to um, produce enough oil domestically to support the economy. And so there was an all-hands-on-deck effort, and that included solar, but it also included synthetic fuels, which is a technology that never really came to fruition. But the idea was essentially to turn coal, American coal, into gasoline. And it's one of the most, the dirtiest possible, in terms of CO2 emissions, technologies. And so even as Carter was pursuing solar energy and put panels on the on the White House, as you said, 
they were also ramping up a major synthetic fuels program using, mm. you know, tar sands and all that. And Frank Press was in charge of that as well. So when uh, Gordon McDonald uh, testified before Congress at a synthetic fuels uh, hearing, he said, this is a disaster. We ca- you cannot do this because the environmental consequences are so extreme. There was some pushback. It, it, it was uncomfortable uh, with the administration. And it wasn't enough that the Carter administration said, you know, we're not going to pursue this. But with time running out on the administration, there wasn't really a huge appetite to launch some dramatic transformational economic policy. So in 1981, Ronald Reagan is sworn in as president, um, whereas Jimmy Carter had really bought into the science of climate change and, you know, made some outward displays that he really cared about environmentalism, put the put the solar panels on the roof. Um, Ronald Reagan was like, take those solar panels down. We're done with that. Yeah. I had a ceremony of like smashing the solar panels just about I mean, tearing them off the roof. Yeah. There you go. A ceremony of smashing the solar panels. Um did that was that like a new chapter for the scientists who kind of knew climate change was coming? I mean, were they at that point kind of in the wilderness because Ronald Reagan was just, you know, on a different page from Jimmy Carter? Yeah, there was a kind of shock when Reagan comes into power because it's right around that time. I write about this this major meeting days before the election when Congress has asked a bunch of experts, including Rafe Pomerantz, to come up with climate legislation. Four days later, Reagan's elected and all of that goes out the window. Mm. It doesn't go out the window because Reagan disputes climate change um, or has any opinion really on the CO2 issue. It goes out the window because the entire environmental movement has to take up this rearguard action to protect all of the gains that have been made, not only in the 70s, passage of the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and the amendments to them, but really going back to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, Reagan is talking about ending the EPA, um, drilling in every public land. It's a sort of maximalist, all-out, drill, baby, drill situation and deregulation. And so they just can't focus on CO2 at all, I mean, including Rafe. And meanwhile, the main effort that then is going on in the government is a huge comprehensive study that will be published under the name Changing Climate, uh, undertaken by the National Academy of Sciences, commissioned during Carter's presidency, but it will take years to unfold. So the CO2 group are in the wilderness for a couple years, first until the publication of the report, but then the report, although confirming all of the science and all the findings, concludes that there's no reason to act immediately. And that kills the whole momentum again, and they don't really recover for another couple of years. I love the story you tell about um, the hole in the ozone layer because, you know, we were talking about Reagan is not really caring maybe a whole lot about environmental protection, much more, um, you know, he I cared about sort of industry and expanding it and making sure that we had enough sort of fossil fuels to keep the economy going and, and to power things along. But then this hole in the ozone layer gets attention. In in fact, it kind of sparks a hysteria. And what happens? The hysteria that was awoken by this phrase, a hole in the ozone layer, which was really a metaphor and a pretty faulty one at that, um, made people think that the sun was bursting through the the sky, that they were going to get blind and that they were going to get skin cancer. There was a visualization that was possible 
it was helped by the fact that there were actually videos of the of the hole in the ozone layer that were really animations uh, colored in to show a hole when it really they're measuring uh, levels of chemicals in various you know strata of the atmosphere. But it made it visceral to people in a way that climate change, despite all the talk of you know seas rising and, and flooding over major American cities, could not. Right. And right. so that was a major factor in the not the only one, but a major factor in the mobilization, political mobilization around the issue. And the Reagan administration was like, I mean, even though people were maybe um, a little a little bit overly hysterical, they they knew this was something they had to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And and there was pushback originally from the administration and from the chemical industry, in particular DuPont, which manufactured something like 90 percent of the chemicals that were creating the problem. But by the middle of the decade, when there were new scientific studies saying, showing that it was happening faster than they even thought, when DuPont figured out that they could profit, crucially, by manufacturing the replacement chemicals mm. for the, the bad CFCs, and... You know, they turn on a dime, basically, and public opinion is becoming, you know, strong. And then you have the beginning of this major international process of negotiating a global climate treaty to prevent depletion of the ozone layer. One of the really striking things when you think about, like, where we sit today is that, you know, you talk about the kind of effort beginning in earnest in the late 70s among scientists and activists to try to convince the people in power that climate change Maybe you don't see it now, but I'm telling you it's going to be a thing. Well, 10 years later, this guy runs for president, George H.W. Bush. He had been vice president for eight years. 1988, the year of the election, is incredibly hot. There's like this really, really hot summer. And George H.W. Bush, a Republican, kind of hard to wrap your mind around right now, maybe says, I believe in climate change and I'm going to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have to say I believe in it because no one disbelieves in it. Okay. He, he just says this is uh, it, for those who say that the greenhouse effect can't be fixed. Greenhouse effect being a completely inadequate term, but put that aside. Um, they haven't heard about the White House effect. And when we're in the White House, we will solve it. And he talks about it on the stump. It becomes a big issue for him. He campaigns to the left of Dukakis on environmental issues. It's in the middle of the summer. James Hansen's testified before Congress and said the warming is here now. It's no longer a theory. And he's a he's a NASA, big NASA climate scientist, right? Major NASA scientist who's the other sort of leading figure in the book. And there's a huge national storm of publicity about it. There's a very widely felt sense that there will be a global treaty exactly in the same uh, mold as the ozone treaty on, on CO2. Even Lee Thomas, the head of Reagan's EPA, says so. Bush runs on it, and the oil industry is frightened. They believe him. They're sure there's some, that some kind of policy is coming. Um, within Congress, there are 32 climate bills introduced in 1988, near the end of the session during that wow. summer, including several major omnibus bills that in, in – Various aspects are more ambitious than this, the Green New Deal, you know, principles that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has introduced. Just like to pause there for a second. 1988, George H.W. Bush, the Republican, runs to the left of Dukakis on climate change, says, we're going to fix it. We're going to we're going to deal with this. And you've got a whole, I think you said, 32 climate bills introduced. It's hard to believe that was 1988. So then it got solved, right? Yeah, exactly. End of interview. 
Um, that's all she wrote. Yeah, so then you get into the first year of Bush's administration and this very odd dogfight breaks out within the administration between uh, William Riley, the head of the EPA, James Baker, the new secretary of state, who's, who's in his first speech at the State Department, uh, welcomes a group from the strategy group from the IPCC, the UN organization that is oversees all of international climate treaty negotiations to this day, and says, you know, we're behind you. Uh, then on the other side, you have this figure of this sinister figure of John Sununu, who was the former governor of New Hampshire, has a science background, PhD in engine, mechanical engineering, and he is enormously powerful. In, in the White House, chief of staff, and he's very skeptical of the science. And for the first time, you have somebody saying, I'm not so sure about the science. I think it's overblown, and I think it's silly to talk about taking major economic actions when the science is uncertain. So let's uh, pause right there with that dogfight. Um, we'll be back in just a minute with Nathaniel Rich, author of Losing Earth, A Recent History, And on the other side, how that White House fight helped turn Republicans from the party running to the left on climate change to the party that doubted the facts behind it. We've got lots more about this story and all the players in it at our website, innovationhub.org. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. summer of 1988, Jesse Jackson stood in a cornfield and prayed for it to rain. Jackson had sought the Democratic nomination that year, even though Michael Dukakis would ultimately get it. But Jackson's trip to the cornfield was a sign of two important things. First, a rising chorus of concern about climate change. And second, a summer that was brutally hot. Farmers were desperate. People stuck in the concrete jungles of New York and Chicago were desperate. And Vice President George H.W. Bush, the presidential candidate on the Republican side, promised to deal with the problem if he got elected. There was no saying, I believe in this. That whole idea that you wouldn't believe in what the scientists were saying was not part of the conversation yet. Um, So it was just a general um, sense of people becoming aware and as they became aware, saying things like we need to, to act. And that was true on Republicans as well as Democrats. Nathaniel Rich is the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History, and he notes that a decade before the presidential election of 1988, a brilliant, super politically connected physicist named Gordon MacDonald had begun sounding an alarm about climate change, along with a young environmental activist. And at the time, in the late 1970s, they felt like the mythical prophet Cassandra, who always knows what's ahead, but who nobody believes. They're having this revelation. They're, they're having a prophecy, and they start to scream about it, and no one wants to listen. That's the story of climate change, of course, over and over again. But by the late 80s, people were listening, and the trajectory of this story was about to change. The science and the prophecy of potential doom were being heard. George H.W. Bush, who ran on addressing the problem, won the White House. Lots of folks in his administration were on board with tackling the issue. There was going to be a global treaty to address carbon emissions. And then a fight broke out. 
This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development that grew and gathered support in the years after World War II. That was John Sununu, who became Bush's first chief of staff. He took on William Riley, head of the Environmental Protection Agency under Bush, and someone who was committed to protecting the environment. The speech you just heard, which Sununu gave in 2013, reflects views that were already starting to solidify in the late 1980s. Rich says this was a very smart guy. He had a Ph.D. in engineering from MIT, and he fiddled around with climate change models on the computer. And, you know, he just wasn't buying it. And Sununu is very skeptical of the modeling techniques, of the technology that's used, of the degree of precision that they're, they're being used. And also has a very odd theory, sort of tortured theory, about the way that leftist anti-growth ideologies and groups of, of, of sort of sinister forces use scientific problems to advance their socialist ends. And so he, you know, he thinks of the population bomb scare in the 70s, the fear that there's going to be rampant overpopulation and we won't be able to support society was a great example of this, you know, Limits limits to Growth book, which was a sensation. Uh, and he thinks climate change is part of a tradition of scientific scares that are then co-opted by these sort of socialistic forces. Now, some version of that thinking is now mainstream within the Republican Party. Right. But at the time, it was pretty novel, and he had to even explain it to others in the administration who at first didn't understand what he was talking about. So he managed to convert that way a couple of other people within the administration, Dick Darman, the head of, of the OMB, and also Alan Bromley, who was Bush's science advisor and who Sununu had, had drafted into the White House. Yeah, so you have him versus Riley and, the, and fighting about what to do about the global treaty over the course of that year. Well, and it sounds like in the end, I guess, Sununu wins. Otherwise, your book would have a different ending. Sununu wins and... You know, the other key factor is that Bush, despite his campaign rhetoric, is really checked out of the problem. He doesn't really understand it. Uh, William Riley told me that he had, in the middle of the summer, when he was looking for something to get some press, he picked out global warming out of his briefing book because no one had been talking about it and, and it was in the news. And so he didn't get scientific briefings on it. And at one point, as they were going back and forth during those months, Riley and Sununu went to him and he said, sort of like a parent with with um, fighting children said, you just you guys work it out amongst yourselves and just tell me what you decide. <laughs> so Sununu is the more powerful person in the administration, and he was ultimately able to force the U.S. delegation in these negotiations to refuse to accept any kind of framework for a treaty that was binding and that had specific targets for emissions reductions. It's interesting because you kind of tell this story that, you know, opens in the late 70s with a lot of possibility, like the possibility of convincing the American people, convincing politicians that climate change is a thing. It's happening. Action has to be taken. And in a way, John Sununu is the bookend to that. And he kind of closes that chapter and says, you know, I don't think it's happening and we're not going to do anything. And I just wonder if you can talk about the through line from John Sununu to where we are now. I'm going to play you a couple of clips of President Trump um, 
talking about how he sees climate change. The first one is him at a rally um, in South Carolina while he was running for president. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money making industry. OK. And then, Nathaniel, the second one is this is once he was president. Uh, this is 2018. He's on 60 Minutes. And he kind of backs off that idea that, that, that Sununu had laid out that maybe climate change is a hoax. I think something's happening. Something's changing and it'll change back again. I don't think it's a hoax. I think there's probably a difference. But I don't know that it's man-made. I will say this. Um, I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. Nathaniel Rich, um, where do you think we sit now? Because there still is that belief. Uh, Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma has talked about this being a Chinese hoax, the um, a notion that there's climate, you know, that the, the, this notion that there's climate change is really just something perpetrated by the Chinese so that they can get the upper hand. Um, where do we sit now politically with this? And and so much of your story in the 70s and 80s unfolds at a time when it didn't matter whether you were a Republican or a Democrat. Everybody like bought into the idea that there was climate change. Yeah, well, the, the essentially the final chapter of, of the book is the story of how this denialist insanity emerged. And it emerged out of meetings held after Hansen's hearing at the top levels of the American Petroleum Institute and Exxon when they started to figure out, you know, what's our response going to be to this massive push for legislation and for treaties. And they began by saying, we need to be a participant in the policy negotiations. We need to burnish our credentials as scientific experts. We need to make sure that that no laws go beyond the science. We need to emphasize uncertainty where it exists. They weren't saying we need to say the whole thing was uncertain, but emphasize where there are, are points of uncertainty. And most crucially, uh, we won't endorse any policy that hurts the bottom line. That's the beginning of the API starts to try to find some scientists who can speak out. The American Petroleum Institute. The American Petroleum Institute, out of its communication shop, finds a handful of scientists, at first, you know, th- three, basically, hmm. uh, to give interviews. And they had, they launch a PR campaign. It's not a big part of their effort. It's sort of an afterthought. But they it soon catches on because you now have all of these national publications uh, start publishing pieces saying, well, maybe there isn't scientific consensus after all. Maybe this whole anxiety is overblown. But you were saying people inside the petroleum industry did believe it was happening. It's just that the, that was not necessarily their external face. Well, they they certainly did believe it was happening. And at first they weren't denying that the whole thing was happening. They were sort of saying, well, there's too much uncertainty to base major economic legislation on. That was the beginning. Of course, they kept pushing it <laughs> and they kept pushing it and pushing it. And especially at, at points later in the in the 90s, Clinton takes over and the Kyoto negotiations in 97, um, you see these massive spikes and, and increasingly brazen efforts to sort of you know shift the goalposts hmm. till you get into full-fledged denial of the science that's existed since the 19th century. And that's where we are now. In fact, we're even further because you have the Republican Party taking a public position on the subject that's even further to the right, I guess you would say, than the industry itself. You know, if you watch national advertisements for Exxon today, you'd think they were a green energy company. They have all these spots about their, you know, work on green algae and, you know, reducing environmental footprints and all of that. I mean, of course, it's bunk, but they know they can't deny climate change anymore. Their shareholders wouldn't permit it. Um, But the Republican Party still does. Um, 
So yes, we're in this seemingly intractable position, but I don't think it's sustainable, and I think it's starting to topple as we speak. Uh, and I think you've seen signs of that even in the last few months, honestly. So yeah, just give me a sense of you know where you think we are today. I mean, your book is called Losing Earth, which I mean, unless the sequel is called like you know Gaining Mars or something, isn't a super optimistic uh, <laughs> title. Saving Earth, right? Exactly. Well, <laughs> Finding the new place we're going to colonize. Um, I I just wonder, I mean, if if there's a science that, that you think, gee, you know, this is going to bring really, really tragic consequences, and, I mean, the, the president doesn't necessarily believe it, I, I don't know, where are we? Well, I think we're actually at a, a moment of tremendous hope and progress because something's happened in the last few months, really since November in this country, that has never happened in the history of, of activism and policy efforts around this problem since going back to the 70s, which is that the conversation has shifted in a, in a profound way, which is to say, until now, the argument has been an appeal to reason. So you have people, you know, it starts with Rafe Pomerantz and James Hansen saying, we know the science, the science is established, uh, we need to act now or things will get really bad and it's silly not to act. And they keep saying that in sort of more and more higher pitched uh, tones. And it's, it's the argument of an inconvenient truth. Yeah. This is crazy that we're not acting. And look, I have, you know, slides, right? Or a movie, a movie in the theaters. I remember that coming out. And we have a movie showing with beautiful images. Yeah. And that's basically been the argument all the way. And that's the argument of trying to convince people that the science is real is sort of yeah. part of that to appeal to reason. I think what this history shows is that there are limits to an appeal to reason. And the way that this new wave of activists you know, led by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager um, who organized these massive walkouts all over Europe and, and now in the U.S., the students in the Sunrise Movement who sat in Nancy Pelosi's office after the election and demanded a, a Green New Deal. They're not speaking in those terms anymore. Of course, they're, they make that argument. It's, it's irrational not to act. But they're saying things like, you know, your inaction is killing us. You are, mm -hmm. you are t stealing our future away. Um, this is unjust. This is the greatest form of, of social injustice that is. And in fact, it's connected intimately, inextricably from all the other forms of inequality in our society because climate change will only increase every form of uh, inequality, racial, economic, gender, age, you name it. And I think that's a profound argument. And I'm not saying that that's sufficient. That's not going to convince President Trump. But I do think it can speak to ordinary people. And I do think it has a chance of undermining the partisanship of the issue. And I, and I also feel that whenever we've had moments of profound social change in this country uh, and sudden social change leading to major legislation, that it has been accompanied by a moral, a higher claim of, uh, towards you know, decency and justice. And I think that for the first time now uh, is happening. And I think that's really exciting. We'll see how far it can go. But I think not only does it have the possibility of being more politically effective, I think it's also just a more honest way of speaking about the problem than engaging in this shadow play of, is the science real? Which I think at this point is just childish to even entertain. Nathaniel Rich is the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History. Nathaniel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you want to know more about one of the characters who most powerfully shaped the debate on climate change, 
we've got a report from New Hampshire Public Radio on John Sununu, who served as governor of that state, and the political muscle of his family. That's at innovationhub.org. Thank you.